have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to be in John chapter 15 the next three weeks. We're going to be in a four-week series where we're going to talk a lot about connection and what that looks like from the scriptures, what it looks like in our lives, and what I believe is God's plan for us that we could maximize the joy that he has set us down according to his design. And uh, we're going to talk in the last week really what that's going to look like in our church and how we can cooperate through that connection to build God's kingdom together. So, First three weeks in John chapter 15, I promise you there's enough material there to, uh, to spend a lot more time than that, so it won't, I don't think it'll get monotonous or boring. Let's read the first 11 verses together. Jesus says, I am the true vine. This is the seventh and final, the crescendo of all of the I am statements Jesus makes in John. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless it abides, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, not a single one of us this morning has gathered without the desire to be joyful. That's why we're here. Lord, some are here because they are joyful. Because, Lord, they, they're walking in close fellowship with you and they are seeing just your blessing in their life. Others are here and, Lord, it took every ounce of faith to get them through the door this morning. And they are here offering up to you what is an apparently wretched life in hopes that they could find joy. A lot of the diagnosis that they have or the hardship in their marriage or the disappointment with their lives or perhaps, Lord, they're just at the end of the rope and they've tried everything else. And, Lord, this morning they're here and they just want to try Jesus. I pray that whoever's here and however they got here, that you would receive the offering of faith that they've made by their attendance with grace. And that, Lord, this morning you would open their eyes to the hope and the joy that comes only through abiding in your son, Jesus. Intimate fellowship with him, moment by moment, fellowship with him. I pray this morning that you would begin the long process of resolving the loneliness of so many. That they would recognize that, Lord, in Christ and in the church of Christ, they never have to be alone again. Lord, I pray, having heard the song of my congregation through the heart of a pastor, that desires that the song that we sing and the life that we live be in complete cohesion with one another. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A 
According to a recent study, one in four people are lonely. That would mean that somewhere around 100 people on our church campus this morning are lonely. And you probably already know this, but if you aren't lonely, you probably have been, or you will be, none of us will ever escape the scourge of loneliness at some time and at some point over the course of our lives. And loneliness can show up at any stage of our life and at any time of our life when things are good or when things are bad. You can be a teenager and feel like you're never included in anything and be lonely. You can be in your 20s, your early 20s, and starting out your life, and you're trying to figure everything out only to discover that your support system isn't as strong and sturdy and reliable as you expected it to be, and you're lonely. You can be in a bad marriage and go home to a cold house, or you can be a senior adult whose children don't ever seem to have time to stop by, and you're lonely. You can be a stay-at-home mom. And it seems like nothing that you do ever gets noticed and nobody even seems to recognize that your presence exists in the world. Or you can be a dad who shows up every day to an apparently dead-end job and you're just a cog in the machine and you just feel lonely. Maybe you have a mental illness. It's invisible to other people and nobody seems to understand. Or maybe you have a childhood trauma, secrets that you carry and you've carried your entire life. And that invisibility and those secrets and that trauma, it's lonely, isn't it? None of us escape loneliness. And I think if we're to understand our loneliness, we must understand it at the very most fundamental level. And the most fundamental level, loneliness is the aching of the heart for reconnection with God. See, all of us were intended from the beginning to enter, to live in intimate, ongoing, moment by moment, simultaneous fellowship with the Holy God. But sin has severed that relationship. We were meant to live in life-giving relationships with one another in our marriages and in our friendships and in, our, in the community of faith. But that has been complicated by sin. And so all of us are struggling with the aching of the soul for the reconnection of God, for the simplification and, and help brought to our earthly relationships that we might realize the design that God has woven into our hearts from the beginning. And so in John chapter 15, Jesus is issuing an invitation. An invitation to come and to abide in him, to connect in him. And by connecting in him, begin to rediscover the initial design by God that you can flourish in all the ways in your relationships with your heavenly father, your relationships with your spouse, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your friends, with your church family, in all the ways that God intended you to. And then by doing so, be able to flourish that your joy may be full, Jesus says. And so this morning, I want us to start with a simple question. How do we abide? What does that really mean? I get, I've actually been asked that a lot. We, we use the word abide a lot here at Iron City because I think it's a beautiful, wonderful, wonderful word. And I hope over the next three weeks you come to become acquainted and love this word too. But let's just start with that simple question. What does it mean to abide? Well, first it means that you have to find the true vine. You have to find the true vine. The most general pursuit of all mankind, is the pursuit of happiness. Every one of you are pursuing it. Every one of you are here because you are pursuing it. 
Blaise Pascal, that philosopher that lived so many years ago, he said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whoever, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. Here's what this means. Some people, they eat every single thing they can get their hands on. And some people weigh every single spoonful of food that goes into their mouth. Why? Same purpose. Some people, they buy everything they can find, whether they have the money or not. Other people save every dollar they make over their entire lives. Why? Same purpose. Some people run marathons. It's hard to conceive, right? They run and run and run, and nothing is chasing them. Other people watch Netflix marathons. Same purpose. Some people sacrifice their entire lives for their children. Some people abandon their children altogether. Same purpose. Same pursuit. Some people follow after Jesus with all of their hearts. And some people follow after their own hearts with all of their might. And it's for the same purpose. They just want to be happy. They just want to be happy. That the decisions that we make, when we make them, are always the decisions that we want to make. And we make them because we believe in that moment, regardless of, of how we're weighing it out. And even though it may be a con conflicted tension in our minds, we ultimately make the decisions that we make because we want to make them, because we believe they will make us happy. Because we believe they will lead to a more significant and satisfying life. And so what we have to all acknowledge this morning, if we're being honest is that our way isn't working. Our pursuit of happiness isn't working. The statistics about happiness among people today are even more grim than the statistics about loneliness in our day. That we make all of our decisions all day, every day. We buy, we do, we go, we perform, we, buy, we, we achieve and we attain. We leave and we change and we try this and we try that. And no matter what we do, after, even though we make every decision for the purpose of our happiness and the purpose of our satisfaction, we end up unhappy. And what happens? When you make every decision for the purpose of being happy and you're not happy, that's where you find despair. Eventually, it may be when you're 30, it may be when you're 35, it may be when you're 40 or 45 or 50 or 55 or 60 or 65. At some point, despair sets in. Because you think, what's the, what's the point? This doesn't work. And Jesus is here in John chapter 15 speaking to this reality in the lives of his disciples. He is in the final moments heading to the cross and he is preparing his disciples who are naturally selfish men. We've established that over the last few weeks, right? Naturally selfish, self-preserving men. And he's preparing them for a life that has a cross in front of it that they can face suffering and disappointment and hardship and betrayal and do all of it while maintaining a fullness of of joy. So to understand what Jesus is laying out for his disciples when he's pursuing this idea of abiding, we must first see that there is an implicit warning that Jesus is giving to his disciples that if we miss it, we don't understand the text. We don't understand the passage. And that is that we must avoid the poisoned wells. We must avoid the poisoned wells. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, when somebody says, this is the real deal, this is the real McCoy, this is the authentic dollar, hundred dollar, buffalo nickel, whatever your thing is, right? What are they implying? That there are a lot of pretenders, right? 
That Jesus here is he's trying to talk through all of the noise and all of the competing voices of the age to tell his disciples that he is the truth in the face of many impostors, in the face of many pretenders, that there is one true vine and he is it. In fact, he's alluding to a metaphor that's often used by God in the Old Testament. I alluded to it earlier when I read from Psalm chapter 80. We see it in Psalm 80, we see it in Isaiah chapter 5. We see it in numerous other passages throughout the Old Testament, especially among the prophets. That what God would often do is he would often refer to his people, Israel, as either the vine or as the vineyard. And as God being the vine dresser. That they were supposed to live in a relationship with God where God was always providing for the vineyard and caring caring for the vineyard and taking care of the vine and pruning the vine and nurturing the vine so that ultimately the vine would bear the sweet fruit of the goodness of God that other nations would be drawn to their fragrance. But what did Israel do instead? Israel sunk their roots into every poisoned well that they happened by, didn't they? Israel would find another God and they think, well, he offers us a little more money, let's go for that. And that wouldn't work, and they would find another one and another one. And before you know it, all of Israel is populated with high places, honoring false gods, denying the way of the Lord. They would find other countries, other nations, and they would build alliances with these other nations for protection and security. The protection and the security that God has promised them. And so they were seeking to, find, to uh, attain all the different means that, that God had pr- was provided and God had promised by means other than the way that God had prescribed for them to do. And so they were always sinking their roots down into poisoned wells. And what Isaiah 5 teaches us and what Psalm 80 shows us is that ultimately they reap bitter fruit as a result. They produce bitter fruit. That they end up in a place they don't want to be with people they don't want to be with, doing things they don't want to do, with consequences they don't want to endure. Now why did they do it? This is important. Why did they go to the false gods? Why did they go to the other nations? Because they wanted to be happy. Because they wanted to be happy. Because they wanted more. Because they wanted their life to be satisfying. Because they wanted to enjoy and live their life to the fullest. They lived by the mantra, life is short and live hard. But their pursuit of happiness left them with nothing but bitter fruit. Can you relate to that? We do the same thing for the same reasons, don't we? We shouldn't be so hard on Israel, should we? I've never met a person. I've never met a person who intends, they they mean to go and to abandon their family and abandon their faith so that they can build and center their life around their job. Nobody means to do that. Nobody means to to go and to be a selfish person or a greedy person or a harsh person. Nobody means to jump from relationship to relationship or from sexual partner to sexual partner. People don't mean to do that. They only mean to be happy. They only mean to be happy. But when they try this relationship, they find out what Israel found out. That it's not enough, and it doesn't make them happy, and it doesn't satisfy them. And so they need another one. And when they try the new job, the new job doesn't fix their life. And when they try a higher salary, the higher salary doesn't fix their job. And when they buy new things, buying new things doesn't fix their misery. What they find themselves over and again is no matter what they try or, or how they escalate their life or how they advance their life, they're still just as miserable as they were before. It doesn't work. 
And so they run from fling to fling to fling to job to job to job to, to company to company to company to house to house to house to community to community to community. They try children and they try, they try indulgence. They try all the things only to find what Israel found. That the pursuit of happiness ironically ruins their life. How many of us have chased after happiness all of our lives only to have trauma and scars and pain to show? So Jesus, Jesus is speaking into the midst of this generation that is familiar with this story. He says, no, abide in me. Abide in me. Sink your roots into my well. Come and dwell with me. Live with me. Stay with me. Connect yourself to me. That is, he's saying, avoid the poisoned wells and remain in the proper vine. You see, Jesus, by saying this, when he says, I am the vine, I am, first of all, is likely a reference to Exodus 3 and Jesus' deity when God says, I am, to Moses, right? He names himself, I am, sent me. And Jesus says, I am the vine. In other words, I am true Israel. I am Israel in the way Israel was intended to be. I have obeyed and kept the law of God. I have stayed in fellowship with God. I have lived moment by moment with God. I have made God's glory the center of my life. And as a result, all of these disciples, knowing them, living with them every day, you know that the fruit of my life is sweet. You know about my joy. You know what it is to walk with me and enjoy fellowship with me. And I'm telling you that if you abide in me, I am true Israel. I am who Israel was always supposed to be. I am enjoying what Israel was always meant to enjoy. And if you will be connected to me, if you will abide in me, if you will remain in me, you will be true Israel too. You will be grafted onto the vine and you will enjoy all that God's people were intended to enjoy to begin with. You will enjoy his provision. You will enjoy his protection. You will enjoy fellowship with him now and you will enjoy unbroken fellowship with him forever. That what he is offering to them, when he offers them to abide in him, is he is offering to them a new environment in which to live their lives. A new operating center for all that they are to do and all that they are to become and all that they are to bring about in their lives. The word abide, it can mean remain. It can mean dwell. It can mean lodge. It can mean stay. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying, come to me and don't leave. Come to me and live with me in moment by moment, day by day, fellowship. Lodge with me. Dwell with me. You with me, me with you. We're going to be inseparable. Everywhere you go, I'm going to be there. Everywhere I go, you're going to be there. You and I together forever. That's the proposition that I'm making. This is completely different than the way many of us have come to understand our faith. Now, thinking again about the metaphor, the branches and the vine. If you have a branch, the branch doesn't just jump off the vine or jump off the tree and go hang out until it gets dried out and needs a drink, right? The, the branch doesn't jump off the tree, go hang out by itself until it needs a little encouragement to come by and then jumps in on a Sunday, gets filled up, and then jumps back off, Right? branch stays in the vine. It's always there. 
that means it doesn't get dry. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't get weary. It doesn't get parched. It's never under threat. Nothing can stop it. Because why? It's always connected to the vine. And Jesus is saying this is a picture of the way the disciples are meant to relate to him. We don't jump off on Monday, live apart from him all week, and then jump back in on Sunday and hope, okay, Lord, this world has sucked me dry. Give me something to go on. Fill me back up. The invitation of Jesus is so much better than that, y'all. It's so much better than that. Jesus, no. Come and live your life right by the well so that you never get thirsty. Come and live your life in light of the spring, connected to the vine, and you will never wither. You won't endure the scars of, of abandonment and the consequences of the pursuit of happiness apart from my. You, you come, you abide with me moment by moment, day by day, mo- Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And when you come together on Sunday, church, you just try to be quiet. Because we're coming together with this abiding reality of what's been happening all week to bring manifested glory to God through our lives because we've seen him. We've experienced this fellowship. We know him. We savor him. Oh, the poisoned wells don't offer that. Your flings have already forgotten about you. Your job will replace you the day after you retire or they fire you. They'll move on from you so quick, it'll disappoint you. But Jesus says, starting today, fellowship with me just gets better. It just gets richer. It just gets more pleasurable. It just becomes fuller. You just see it better. It just fills you up. You get stronger and bigger and broader and sturdier and able to withstand until ultimately you are ushered into glory. Well, it will be uninterrupted. Do you see it? Do you see it? But you see, to remain in Jesus, and this is the point, to remain in Jesus, dwell in Jesus, lodge in Jesus, means that you have to necessarily forsake all of those other places that you're tempted to run when you want to be happy. You have to recognize, church, that another fling isn't going to make you happy because it didn't make you happy last time, did it? You have to recognize that another job isn't going to fix it. It didn't fix it last time, did it? You have to recognize that another purchase isn't going to fix it. It didn't fix it last time. There's just going to be more. There is something insatiable about that. Now, God may provide you a better salary, and God may provide you another job, and I pray that God provides you the mate that you're looking for. But none of those are the central pursuit of life. The central pursuit of life is let me draw near to Jesus and abide in Jesus and rest in Jesus, and then whatever else comes, I can bring glory and praise to his name because that's just icing on top to begin with. And when you begin to recognize that Jesus is the true vine and that all of these other pursuits are poisoned wells, if that is the anchor point of your joy and the anchor point of your happiness now, now you recognize that your next step to abide in him is to depend upon him entirely. Something that I don't think it's talked about often enough that ought to be said out loud is that the Christian life can make you miserable. Some of you know that by experience. I know this by experience. The Christian life can be a miserable one. 
I think this gets to so much of the ex-evangelical movement. I, and I'm, sp- I'm speaking in broad terms. Every story is unique and, and particular to that person. I understand that. But if you listen to a lot of the stories, and I have listened to a lot of them, and I have read a lot of them, many of them grew up in very fundamentalist traditions in which a lot of their faith, at least in their minds, was I have to dress a certain way, I have to talk a certain way, I have to do a certain thing, I have to make sure I'm not with these people, and I am with these people, that I'm not saying this, and I am saying this, that I am doing this, and I'm not doing this. And what many of them found is at the end of the day, it just withered and dried them out. They were completely depleted. They were miserable. It was a miserable way for them to live their lives. And so finally, they all said, if this is what following Jesus is about, I'm out on that. I don't want this. This is miserable. And again, I think this is actually a main point of what Jesus is communicating to his disciples as they prepare to go and die for him. That they are responsible to bear fruit for the kingdom. But if they try to bear fruit upon their own, out of their own resources and bear fruit out of their own strength and out of their own resolve and by their own grit, then what they're ultimately going to find is that they have a faith that is withered, dried, and dead. But Jesus wants us to understand that we'll die alone. Jesus says three times, you see one of them there in verse 5, Jesus says three different times, he talks about how prolific the the fruit bearing is supposed to be among his disciples. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am, he it is that bears much fruit. And if you go through the first 11 verses, you'll see it come up three times. More fruit, much fruit. You're supposed to have a lot of fruit in your life. And we're going to talk on the third week about the kind of fruit that we're talking about here. But if you just go about trying to bear fruit, you'll ruin your life. You'll ruin your life. That you're supposed to be about bearing much fruit. But he says something that could almost be kind of harsh. Look at what he says after in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself. Neither can you. By itself, alone, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't live the Christian life alone. By itself, the branch separated from the vine, the branch separated from the tree, has no hope. And I would propose to you this morning that there is nothing more miserable than trying to produce fruit in your life in which you are incapable of producing. This morning I severed. This very tree, this very limb from a redbud tree in my backyard. Still a little damp and wet from all that. But I want you to imagine that I took this limb that I cut from the redbud tree today. I love redbud trees. They're beautiful, right? They produce this beautiful flowers in the spring. It's the whole thing. Some of y'all are into flowers. Some of y'all are not. Redbud trees are awesome, right? These are yours. But I want you to imagine that I was determined, resolved. I made it my New Year's resolution to produce apples from this branch. Now, I could go every day, and this is the kind of person I am. I'm kind of an obsessive guy. Ask, ask, ask around, okay? It, it's known, okay? I'm kind of an obsessive guy. So imagine that I set my calendar, because this is the kind of thing I do, and my top A personality determined I was going to put this in the richest soil, and I put it in the richest soil. And every morning I woke up and I watered it. Every afternoon I came home and I watered. Actually, what I would do, if it was me, I would have a sprinkler on a timer system, and it would just do it automatically. That's how I roll. And every day it got watered exactly. Now, over time, what would happen? 
This would get deader, not more alive, right? This would become brittle and dry. Well, that would be disappointing because it's supposed to produce apples. And I made it my New Year's resolution to produce apples. And I'm working really, really, really hard for it to produce apples. So then I could take it and I could reposition it. I could get it better sunlight, morning sunlight. That's the good stuff, right? Get that morning sunlight there in the dew. And I can make sure that right when it comes up, there it is, shining in the sun. I could come back home and I could nurture it. A couple of weeks would go by, it would just get deader and deader, wouldn't it? Well, this is the kind of guy I am. I love the plants. I can take it inside at night, bring it downstairs. I can play classical music to it at nighttime so it can have some sweet songs because I am all in on producing apples from this tree. Eventually, what am I going to do? Eventually, I'm going to get so frustrated because this is me too. And I'm going to start yelling at it, produce apples! What is wrong with you? And then I'm going to break it. I told you. I did it this morning. <laughs> but eventually, I'm going to yell at it. It's going to be a lot more brittle by then. Remember, weeks have gone by. Weeks have gone by. And I'm going to break it over my knee. And I have a feeling that I just characterized a lot of people's relationship with Jesus. And a lot of people's faith. Perhaps you've made a New Year's resolution. This year, I'm going to have the fruit of the Spirit. This year, I'm going to be patient. And I'm going to try really hard to be patient. I am not being patient very fast. It's not coming quickly enough. What is wrong with me? I'm not patient. I hate me. And we end up taking our entire faith and breaking it over our knee. And by February or March, we've given up. We could talk about anger. We could talk about pornography. We could talk about any number of things, right? But the truth of the matter is, is that if you are a branch living by your giftedness and by your grittiness and by your self-resolve, some of you will make it to March, some of you will make it to May, some of you might make it to December, but you won't make it forever. Instead, you end up with a conscience that's always yelling at you. A conscience that's always telling you what a failure you are. A conscience always telling you what a miserable Christian you are. A conscience that's always telling you how, how, what a terrible father or a terrible mother or a terrible husband or a terrible wife you are. And what happens is, is you don't end up the end of the year more alive. You end up the end of the year more dead with a faith that is further away because you're miserable and your faith has actually served to amplify your misery. This is what Jesus is getting at with his disciples. They will not make it to the end if they are not abiding in him. If they try to do it by their own grit, by their own character, by their own giftedness, by their own toughness, Peter may make it farther than John, but they won't all make it to the end. And we'll die alone. But the good news for Jesus' disciples back then, and the good news for you and I today, is that in Christ, when we abide in him, we're never alone. We're never alone. There's a lot of conditions, conditional statements that are given in our, te- in our text here. He says, unless it abides in the vine. Unless you abide in me. He, uh, he says, 
if anyone does not abide, if you abide in me. There are a lot of conditional statements being made that, yes, you are to be prolific in bearing fruit in the kingdom. You are to be prolific in the way that you love your neighbor and love one another. You're to be prolific in your service to God and the keeping of the scriptures. You're to be prolific in bearing the fruit of the Spirit and making this up. You're to be prolific in all of these things. But unless you are abiding in the vine, you will not be able to do it. You can't do it. And that's why Christianity, Christianity is not something that you can try for the purpose of overcoming your misery. It's not just something that you can dabble in because you've tried everything else and then you think, if I can just maybe adopt some of these ancient principles, maybe it's even the principles of your grandmother or the principles of your family, the, the principles of your heritage here in the South, that I'm just going to ad- adopt some of these ancient principles. I've tried everything else. And if I can just keep all the rules and adopt all the principles, then maybe I'll have some hope. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. That, that, that's why every single week I don't come in here and tell y'all how to avoid debt and how to, how to have better relationship because none of that stuff lasts. All of that stuff is brittle. All of that stuff leads to a withering, dying faith. The distinct hope of Christianity is not an old set of principles. It is a person whom you know and in whom you rest. It's not about all the things that you do. It's about getting to know Jesus. That the preeminent responsibility of the Christian life is not to produce fruit. The preeminent responsibility of the Christian life is to abide in Jesus. To know Jesus. To walk with Jesus. To dwell with Jesus. Remain in Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Lodge with Jesus. To let Jesus be the operating center of your life. And that's what it means when we talk about resting in him. See, the responsibility that all of us have, we're going to bear fruit. We have to bear fruit. Jesus says we have to bear fruit. But the fruit comes from the abiding. And so Jesus says there in verse 7, my words abide in you. What is he saying? Get to know me, man. Get to know me. And know me so well that the things that I've said and the things that I've taught and the man that I am and the, and the Savior that I've come to be resonates in your soul. It's at the forefront of your mind. It begins to refine your character. He even goes so far to say that whatever you wish, it will be done for you. That doesn't mean you're getting a Bentley or a Benz. It means that if you abide in Christ, in Christ's words, abide richly in you, that your wishes and his wishes become the same wishes. It refines your character. By getting to know better who he is, it changes who you are. That's the principle. And when the word of God dwells in you, when you make it your aspiration not to produce more, but to abide better, to abide more fully, to abide more completely. When you make it that your aspiration, what happens is the transformation of your character begins to resolve and the word of Christ begins to dwell in you and you begin to realize, wait a second, wait a second. My family doesn't all rest on my shoulders. They rest in Jesus and so do I. My ministry, my ministry isn't all on my shoulders. My ministry is on the shoulders of Jesus and I rest in him. 
My church family, it doesn't, it doesn't rest on my shoulders. It, it rests on Jesus' shoulders. My sin, all the ways that I've blown it up, all of my impatience, all of my anger, all of my frustrations, all of my disappointments, they don't rest on me. They rest on him. So now I can be a happy mama or dad or husband or wife or employee or church member, because the weight of the shoulder of the world isn't on my shoulders. The weight of the world is on the shoulders of Jesus. And Jesus has said, just come, just stay with me. Abide with me. When you begin to recognize that Jesus is the true vine, and you begin to depend upon him and upon him entirely for your life and with your life, now you produce the vine's fruit. See, what Jesus is after in the lives of his disciples then is the same thing that Jesus is after in the lives of his disciples today, is that we would live the Jesus life in our lives. The best question, one of the best questions I've ever heard asked of a Christian is this. If Jesus had your life with your spouse, with your kids, with your job, how would he live it? How would he live it? What kind of parent would he be? What kind of employee would he be? What kind of job would he be? I mean, what kind of boss would he be? What kind of teacher would he be? What kind of professor would he be? What kind of doctor would he be? What kind of Honda employee would he be? What kind of neighbor would he be? What kind of church member would he be? And that begins to clarify for us the shape of the life and the fruit that is meant to be born in our lives. And Jesus is here, I think, giving his disciples, giving us insight into the way that Jesus actually lived out his life. The way that the Jesus life took shape in his life so that now it can take shape in our lives as we abide in him. And it starts with us experiencing Jesus' love. He says something, it reminds me of what we talked about on Christmas Eve when we were in John chapter 10, John seems to like to appeal to the relationship between the Father and the Son a lot, doesn't he? Listen to what he says in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Right before Jesus' hardest moments in ministry, right before his temptation... You have the descending of the Spirit, and what happens? The sky splits, and the Father declares his love for us. This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. On his way to the cross, the same thing. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the sky splits, and the heavens open up, and the Father says, well, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. That the only times we have of the Father speaking to the Son in the Gospels, he's talking about how much he loves him and how happy he is with him. And this is the key. This is how Jesus is able to face down opposition and not flinch. This is how Jesus is able to be homeless and not miserable. This is how Jesus is able to see his life, which from the outside looking in is an apparently hard and disappointing one, and live it. And all the people around him think, I want the joy of this guy. I want to spend time with him. It's that he had solidified in his mind the security of his relationship with his father. And he knew that whether he was alone or he was with people, whether he was, he was being opposed or he was being celebrated, whether he was homeless or he was in Matthew's house throwing the dinner party, that there he was in light of the love of his father in him. And that that was an unshakable bond. And what does Jesus say? 
just as, just as, just as the eternal Father loves the eternal Son, so have I loved you. Now, we might think that this is past tense. This is not past tense. This is talking about something that has been perfected. It's aorist tense. It's not talking about something chronological. He's not saying, I have loved you in the past, and maybe it's open for interpretation. He's talking about something that is so complete, something that is so perfected, something that is so certain, something that is so unshakable, that it is a present reality and a future reality, but it's so sure it's like it's already done. It's already been in the past. That Jesus can't love you with a higher intensity. His love for you is at maximum volume. Jesus can't love you to a greater extent. He's already loved you to the nails on the cross and from the victory over the grave. Jesus can't love you in a more perfect way. His love for you is already perfected. Oh, your love for him is growing. His love for you is solid. Your love for him wavers hot and cold. His love for you is unwavering. Your love for him right now might be less than your sexual desires. It might be less than your greed. But his love for you is in totality and completion. And so he says, abide there. Go there, Christian, and don't leave it. Abide in my love. Realize how I, let the default of your mind not be all of your problems. Let the default of your mind not be all of your disappointments. Let the default of your mind not be all your failures. Let the default of your mind be the love of Jesus for you. That he has overcome your faults. He's overcome your failures. He's overcome your future. He's overcome your growth. He has overcome it all. That the default of your mind, the dwelling place of your mind, the operating center of your mind, the environment of your life is now the love of Jesus proven for you. And then you can express Jesus' joy. You see how he anchors these things together in verse 10? Abiding is not some mental exercise alone. Abiding is something that happens inwardly and is expressed outwardly. So it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Because this is how I did it. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That in Jesus' mind... The way this, this is taking place in his life and the way that it looks in his life as he goes to the cross is he knows he has the certainty, the security of his love for his father and having the certainty and the security of his love for his father, having received great love, now he wants to express great love. And so he keeps the commandments of the Lord because he wants to obey the Lord. He wants to glorify the Lord. He wants the Lord to enjoy him as much as he enjoys the Lord. That's the my joy that we're talking about. And what he's talking about in the transformation of his disciples is that his joy would be our joy. That his obedience would be our obedience because we have received the same love as him. So now we can live the same life as him. The Christian life can be summarized like this. Receive love, express love. Receive love, express love. What are the my, what are the my commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your might 
Love your neighbor as yourself. A new commandment I give to you that you would love one another. This is the starting point. It's his love for us. And what is his joy? My joy is to bring glory to my honor, to my father in heaven. Because I love him, to express love to him by keeping his commandments. And now, now the joy that is before you is to receive the joy from the father and to express it through obedience to Christ. Not because you have to. Not because you're trying to get apples out of a redbud tree. Because you live connected to the vine. You live with the momentary by momentary realization that you are loved by Jesus. That his love for you is intense and perfect and complete. That he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. That he will always provide for you and he will always protect you. That he is always for your good. He is always for your flourishing. That he's going to come back for you. And so now... Now, you bring that reality to the forefront of your mind and go be a mama. You bring that reality to the forefront of your mind and go to work in the morning. Bring that reality to the forefront of your mind and, and go to school. And if they accept you, they accept you. If they don't, they don't. If your, parent, if your kids appreciate you, they do. If they don't, they don't. Because why? You have received love and now you are expressing love. And your status with him is secure. The Christian life, when it gets on the cycle of receiving and expressing, you get the joy of receiving and the joy of giving, well, now your joy can be full forever. And it's a pathway not to misery, but to supernatural, prolific, powerful, fruit-bearing joy. So this morning, I know you're looking to be happy. And the good news that I have for you is that if you abide in Jesus, you are not alone. Can we pray to the Lord together? Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.